we're seeing totaling around $220 per patient per month in new achievable revenue for our practice when deploying those suite of solutions. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 201 of Anesthesia and Pain Management Success. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Rachel Trobman, who is the CEO and co-founder with her husband, Jason, of Upside Health. It has a great domain, upside.health, which I thought was pretty cool. It's Thanks, Upside Justin. Health is a uh, digital health platform designed to empower private practitioners. And I found that in talking to Rachel a little bit, we, we shared the same ethos of wanting physicians who are working for themselves on behalf of their patients to be able to go as far and as fast and as well as they can and found her to very much be an ally. So as you know, in in the context of this show and the guests Mm -hmm. I try to have on here, I try to bring resources for our listeners who uh, can have something important to offer private practice folks. And uh, Rachel, I'm excited to be talking to you today. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks so much, Justin. It was such a breath of fresh air when we were having our conversation. Uh, and I'm so glad we get to do so more formally now. So tell me about how you got into what you do. And I know that we had we we're just talking off the air here about we've got the professional experience that informs our trajectory, but also some important personal family relationship components that also are yeah. interwoven yeah. with our trajectory in life. Yeah, I think it's really interesting in that, you know, your LinkedIn profile or your CV doesn't always adequately reflect the personal experiences that bring you to your professional trajectory. And I spent a good deal of my early professional life in the digital world of news and media. So really building platforms and products and finding new lines of business within existing lines of business uh, that utilize technology. And I did that for a while and got really good at that. But my heart and my, my gut were telling me to utilize this knowledge in a space that personally I felt needed a lot of transformation. And Growing up, my mom had pretty severe lupus, and my brother had cystic fibrosis. And so as a child, that meant spending a lot of time in doctors and hospitals and understanding the challenges with the patient experience, but also understanding and watching the strain that physicians faced as well, trying to help these highly complex patients live their lives with the limited resources that were often at their disposal. And I found that tech provided an an awesome opportunity to do some of that. Not all of it, but some of that. Uh, And one of my great areas of interest was pain care, because unlike other things that were dealing with disease progression, a lot of pain care was happening you know, more than just the pill, more than just the procedure. Um, And so one of those great areas of openness or unknown was communication around pain. How was my pain different than somebody else's pain? How do you quantify that? How do you act on that? And without any real insight into that, how do clinicians create scalable solutions? And so originally I started a a company that was 
uh, more direct to patients, direct to consumers, actually, since they weren't. And it was called Ouchie. And the point of Ouchie was to create a healthy and helpful way for patients to communicate around their pain or for people to communicate around their pain. Um, And in launching that and getting the support of a lot of leaders in the patient advocacy, pharma, health system space, we discovered that this wasn't just a patient problem, but as I suspected, right, a, a more systemic one. And we found a real true sweet spot in helping practices in particular that often have limited resources at their disposal that are operating on, you know, sometimes razor thin margins, the opportunity to care for these very high need and very much scared and frustrated patients in a way that was not only break even and not only, you know, providing the best care, but also creating opportunities for growth within a practice. And so therefore, Upside Health, as we discussed it, and our product Branch Health was born and continues to evolve. Tell me about you and your husband, Jason, and kind of how the how you came to the decision that working together in business was something that was what you wanted to do. Yeah, you know, it never was a decision uh, in part. I mean, it was just we've always loved to collaborate on things. Uh, we've we've known each other and been together for almost twenty years now, and you know, early in both our our courtship, our dating and engagement and whatnot in all different professional settings, we would be helping each other out with each other's strengths. So he's a technologist by training, worked at the New York Stock Exchange as a lead engineer, then worked for a few media companies and then was a CTO, the chief technology officer at a digital agency. Um, And as a technologist who built websites and built mobile applications and VR experiences, many times you often end up with IT tasks as well. And so a lot of companies that I was working for, they needed some somebody with an infrastructure and architecture perspective to come in. You know, We would utilize him when they would need something from a content or marketing or strategy perspective. A lot of times I would support that. And we realized that we were a a very strong team and people started hiring us on the side to build and deploy digital solutions for them. And that was all good and fun, but um, having the opportunity to work on a shared project together and a shared mission with my ideas from really like a growth problem solving strategy perspective and his from a systems perspective really learning what can be automated, what can be digitized, but in a way that isn't losing its value, but is really reducing strain. We found obviously hasn't just been good for our product branch health, but has really become something that our clients that have relied on us for our services have started to utilize as well, because nothing that we want to introduce do we want to be prohibitive. Yeah. In terms of deployment, right? And we yeah. want them to be additive in some ways, but not additive in necessary time and resources or internal resources. Right. So tell us about Branch Health. So Branch Health is our our product that gets deployed by primarily right now physician-run pain practices. 
uh, independent practices as a way of scaling remote care. And Branch Health includes both a mobile application that works on smartphones and tablets with the key point of obtaining valuable insights directly from the patient, both patient-reported outcome measurements, as well as passively collected insights. So, you know, step count, heart rate variance, distance travel, to help better inform treatment efficacy, to better inform care management. And then we do that once we identify, you know, challenges within the patient's experience, provide them access to a library of integrative wellness content that handles the components of care that physicians often don't have the time, somewhat the training or the compensation to deliver. So all of the self-management tools that the patient can do on their own, but that many patients haven't uh, had the opportunity to be exposed to or be exposed to in a, a professional way. So mindfulness, movement, art therapy, sleep hygiene, pain education, nutrition, all of those supplementary wraparound services. We also have the nursing teams and the care management teams who support allowing these services to be billable. So you introduce the Branch Health app, but you get the suite of services that then, you know, does everything from the documentation, the billing, the insurance authorization, the insurance reauthorization and verification. So that way these uh, solutions can be deployed. Tell us a little bit about the team that you currently have and the different sort of functions of Branch Health in terms of if somebody is moving forward with this product, who are they going to be interacting with? We try to support every practice with, you know, three key areas. Tech, right? We're going to be integrating with your EMR and your workflow. And we want to make sure that our process is as simple for you to use as possible. And so while we have best practices and guidelines and guidebooks and templates and everything for you to get started, we also want to make sure that if we have to make modifications, there's an open line of communication so we can do what's best for you. The second area is our patient success. Once you enroll a patient into the Branch Health Program, we take over. And so all of our team is going to be reaching out to the patients, educating the patients on the impro- on the program, helping them download things, helping them troubleshoot any sort of technical challenges, walking them through just like you'd walk through your grandmother, how to look at photos on Facebook of their grandkids. We'll do the same thing, getting them onboarded and comfortable with the program. The third side is the nursing team. So all of our nurses operate under the general supervision of the practice. And so it's really important that the physicians feel comfortable with the nurses and that we are following whatever protocol and practices are most appropriate for your office. So all of our clients um, get involved in an onboarding call with our nurses and we develop practices and guidelines together. And then the fourth is, you know, it's client success. Me and my team making sure that anything that we can do to improve your practice optimization, we're doing. And that's everything from reviewing the claims that are going out 
for any remote care programs, reviewing the EOBs that come back in, seeing if there's any denials or changes that need to be made in terms of protocol and process moving forward. So we can constantly optimize the success, but also the the efficiencies in in the program. When physicians reach out to you to learn more about your services, what are they usually looking for? And are they looking for the right thing? <laughs> or is the solution something a little different than what they expect? If that makes sense. What's yeah, the Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of them, I mean, I think they're facing a lot of pain points. I think one is resource management. So internal resource management, utilizing their clinical team um, at the highest degree of their specialty, but understanding that when doing that, the patients are still left with a lot of things that they need or they need addressed, but aren't always best managed in the clinic setting. So getting a lot of calls or persistent phone calls around patients who are confused, frustrated, dealing with a lot of medication issues right now and handling and controlling the pharmacy. So I think that that's that's where they see a problem. And then I also think they see that there's some sort of revenue growth to be captured through these codes because they know they exist. They've heard about them. They've heard about a friend who's deployed them and made a lot of money, or they've heard about a friend who's deployed them and lost a lot of money, or they've heard about digital, but they don't really know, is it telehealth? Is it, you know, there's a, there's a lot of questions, more questions out there. But what they've really, a lot of our clients are seeing in value is a couple of things. One of them is pinpointing the right treatments. A lot of times physicians aren't getting the complete data from the patients to be able to provide the right targeted solution. And that's because, again, communication around pain is really difficult. And if you're only getting the patient to remember what they remember at that specific time, you're going to see, you know, gaps. And when you have somebody and a platform who is checking in on the patient and trying to identify those little moments that can have big impact, the physicians are, you know, uncovering, you know, this medication that was used for this patient was the first 24 hours was really effective, but the last 48 hours, the patient was in excruciating pain and was taking fill in pain medication to, or a breakthrough pain medication regularly to accommodate for that. And being able to change the duration, you know, maybe a longer acting or, you know, a, a different uh, combination by doing that has eliminated the need through breakthrough pain medication, which is safer and more secure for the provider and for the patient, but also allows the patient to feel better and not have those breakthrough episodes. And the, the physician that we've been working with, they've been seeing this patient for months, maybe even over a year without really being able to identify that this was a challenge. So I think that that was something that they weren't expecting. Others is just like the thoroughness of the notes, right? Being able to use this, you know, 360 to look on what's happening with the patient to be able to better identify, um, better communicate with payers, better communicate with pre-authorization requests without having to dig through a lot of different uh, types of documentation, I think are some of the other areas. And then Obviously, just the patient's 
desire to feel heard regularly. So almost being able to offer a concierge level of care, right? That high quality that you're hoping to be able to deliver when you're, when you decided to be, you know, go out on your own, but without having to take on this extraordinary infrastructure internally. So it's like, you've, you know, doubled your practice size or your practice capabilities without actually having doubled your costs. Yeah. Yes. And your FTEs. Yeah. If somebody's interested in, you know, enacting what you're describing, can you talk us through the process of getting set up and what type of practice is this a good fit for and which patient cohorts are particularly served well with this model? Yeah. I mean, I think the practice makeup that we've seen successful really varies. For us, it it's not really geography. I mean, across the country, there's need, there's reimbursement, there's opportunity here. And it's not so much the size, although, you know, this works with single providers with uh, NPs and PAs all the way up to, you know, multi-specialty practices. We think some of the drivers are the easiest clients for us to implement are based off of a few EMRs. So, you know, we're completely integrated with Athena. So if Athena practice wants to sign up tomorrow, we can have them fully deployed and running within two weeks. But we work currently, I think, with like eight or nine EMRs. And even if you don't have a cloud-based EMR, we figured out workflows. For us, we're working in both interventional pain practices as well as interventional and med management pain practices. Payer mix is important. So if you are primarily a workers comp and no fault or like auto practice, that's a little bit tricky because reimbursement there is not as consistent. You know, and so it varies from state to state. If you are have a heavy Medicare practice with um, commercial and some advantage plans, like that's great. And then in, in terms of patient cohort, really we see across the gamut. We have uh, patients who are as young as nineteen, all the way to those that are eighty three. If we also have different degrees in phone access. The only thing I'd say is if like 90% of your practice patients are still on flip phones, it's going to be a challenge right now. That doesn't mean that we're not going to be able to create solutions to support those patients and those practices in the future. But the way that the software as a medical device type of things are written, we really need to have an application component to what we're doing. And that's where those practices are a little bit more challenging. Talk about the economic model and how you get paid, how the doctor gets paid, and what it means in terms of the different codes that perhaps are right now unutilized by a certain practice, what types of categories of codes even. I know there's several different ones, and this is an area of scrutiny by some payers right now. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't. the reason these codes exist is because by better monitoring these patients, these patients have better outcomes. And they're seeing less utilization. There has been many, many studies that have been done in during COVID and beyond. Look at the reduction in hospitalizations, ER visits, extensive procedures in 
patients who are under monitoring, whether it's remote physiologic or therapeutic monitoring. But the way that our program works is we look at your practice volume and we set a launch price and then a tiered price based off of your patient volume and the number of billable patients we believe that can be captured. And that billable number and that fee is kind of looking at about 50% of what could be billed to insurance. But the way that we position it is very much responsive and okay under a stark and anti-kickback laws. Like we're very conscious about the way that we model these relationships because it's really important to us. We are currently help practices and support the services of, I think, nine different CPT codes. I think that number is growing. So there's the remote physiologic monitoring codes. There's the remote therapeutic monitoring codes, which are the ones we're primarily sitting in. All of those services can be provided incident to and under general supervision, which is how we're operating. There's the BHI codes, the behavioral health intervention codes and integration codes, as well as the PCM codes, so principal care management codes, and then now the CCM codes, so the chronic pain management codes. Um, And even if we can't provide the services for all of them, we can help set you up so those things can be done. Um, There's also codes that are associated with certain validated surveys and screening tools and other services and utilizations, education codes and whatnot that can help support that. And we're seeing totaling around $220 per patient per month in new achievable revenue for our practice when deploying those suite of solutions. Do you find that with the clients of yours, the physician practices that you work with, you're, you find yourself coming in and often like opening up their either awareness or utilization of codes that are generally not utilized, or is it more an optimization? Like they're doing a little of this, a little of that. Maybe there's some, some form, digital form that they're using to get some data and is billable, but it's, they, they need help. So we kind of have seen two different things. One of them is the practice is not using it at all. And we're kind of peeling back the onion and saying, these are the opportunities that exist here. Are like the real opportunities, not like what somebody's going to sell you. Like, let's look at your your practice legitimately, where your scope is, what your patient population, what your payer mix is, what we think is attainable, what can be rendered internally by your team and what can be supported externally by our team, and then go that way. And then as we work together, maybe potentially uncover more opportunities and optimizations. And then the other side is clients who have deployed solutions that have not worked out and identifying why they didn't work out. Maybe the service or solution that they used before didn't actually do any billing or documentation. Maybe they couldn't get patients on board because there was no proper education. where, Where were the gaps? And then organizing a plan of action that kind of relaunches those types of solutions in a more complete manner and also handles the education and reassurance for the patients as well who may feel jaded or jilted for because of any sort of um, transition or confusion. So for our listeners, we haven't really uncovered ones that like are kind of dabbling or not completely using them yet. 
Rachel, if you have any case studies, and I know you mentioned like the the studies that have addressed these different types of remote physiologic, therapeutic, behavioral health, the the, the tools available, the link to outcomes, I would love to aggregate some of the some of your favorites perhaps in our show notes. So for our listeners, if you go to apmsuccess.com slash two zero one for episode two hundred and one, we'll post mm-hmm. that there as well as anything else that Rachel wants to provide in terms of information about the effectiveness of this technology and the way that it helps patient outcomes. Yeah. I mean, we've also seen, I mean, from our own perspective too, right? Like the EOBs that we've received and the optimizations, I think we had like 95% of billable claims reimbursed. Um, And the ones that had denials was because there was no policy or, you know, a different policy in place. And with one payer in particular, we were able to uncover, you know, a different set of opportunity with different set of codes. So moving forward, you know, being able to support that practice in an ongoing way without, you know, knocking out a quarter of their patient population. But yeah, there's there is true proof of performance from both a revenue and outcomes perspective for patients like this, not to mention patient satisfaction and success. So let's talk about the interaction between your product and service and the billing department, because I think that's an important component of this internal versus external billing, the interaction that you have through the EMR and working with insurance companies. Can you help listeners understand how that works? Yeah. So I don't know why I didn't, I guess I kind of said our client success team works with this, but one of our key parts of onboarding a new client is working with their billing department, whether internal or external. One, we have to make sure that they even have these codes in their fee schedule, right? If they don't, let's put them in. Let's look at together any policies that are known or unknown. And let's build a potential opportunity calculator or look at what this growth looks like, could look like in your practice, given your particular payer mix. From an EMR integration perspective, because we are posting the notes and the codes directly in there through APIs, not necessarily us going in on an individual basis. Um, We're putting all of the information there to be utilized by external or internal billers. And we tend to take a hands-off approach to the actual sending or filling out insurance. Although there are some cases where we've helped practices create some super bills because they, you know, say, Yes, everything goes in the EMR, but the way it works with our external biller is we need super bills put in this folder at this time. And we've done that. What's a super but bill? But really, Just then it's the commu- information. So it's different than a note. A super bill, from what we've seen, is like the patient information, the applicable billing codes, the applicable diagnosis codes that can be submitted to an insurance company. But it's all of anything that goes with that service. The where the next, you know, point of contact happens is when they hear back from the payers. And for us, having visibility into that, whether it's through them sending EOBs, whether it's them exporting their claims reports by patient ID and reimbursement amounts. It's really important for us to see that to truly be their partner because if there was a payer that we didn't think was reimbursing for this, but we submit a claim and there's coverage, then we now have precedent and reason to, you know, connect with other patients in their practice or, you know, 
great fits for the program. If there's not, then we don't want to continue to drain resources, create frustration with their patients around these resources and see what other opportunities there might be available to support those patients within the confines of their insurance arrangements. So just having that that deep connection, I think, and that trust and that understanding that we're really here to help support the practice growth and we're only as good as we are together, I think really makes a difference. Talk about the way that sort of the cost works, the the revenue arrangement and like the way that your success is linked to the practice success, the, the client success for you. Yeah, I mean, we if we have no patients to engage with, there's no cost, but then there's also no opportunity for us. So it is really a shared growth for both of us, meaning the more patients that we put that you put into our program, the more patients that we can support you with. And that's the more services that are being offered to your patient from a support perspective. I don't know if that's if that's clear enough, but really think, we're yeah, looking I'm at interested. break even if not growth. Yeah. So maybe just like break even like if not growth across the board. The way that if you have a it would take sort of a simple example of one pain doctor with uh, an NP or two and X number of patients per month and they're they're doing it sufficient volume to think about engaging your services. How mm-hmm. does that break down in terms of total patient population, qualified patients, the patients that enroll, the patients that actually use the service, and then what the physician is paying for? Because I think one of the dangers is with this, this is true in digital, this is true in marketing. It's it's difficult to understand at the beginning what the actual experience and cost is going to be in many cases. And so doctors end up, you know, you alluded to this, lighting big piles of money mm-hmm. on fire without really knowing what they're getting, hoping there's going to be something at the end. But one thing I liked about the structure as you articulated it is there's a lot of aligned interest. And for patients that like don't benefit, those are not ones that the practice is paying for. Right. In terms of- right. We look at like qualified patients, right? Qualified yeah. billing patients. So the way that we'll look at it is let's say we have a practice that sees a thousand patients a month. Let's make it really simple. And we, um, of the thousand patients a month, let's take just 10% of them, a hundred patients for starters, we're going to think are qualified for an RTM program. And then of those, we'll look at your payer mix and say, eh, you know what, of that a hundred, only 80 of them are covered by insurances that will support this remote care program. Now, that doesn't mean all 100 patients or all 1,000 patients within your pot, in your office can't benefit from our program and doesn't mean that we won't we can't offer it and they can use the data and we can transfer the data and that data can be valuable to your practice offering. And so for, you know, a a very small, when I say very small, I mean like a couple hundred dollars a month that can be available to your whole office because we've seen the impact of that. But on the larger fee, let's look at those 80 patients, those 80 patients that we've like pre-qualified and then qualified for, those are the only patients that are going to be billable patients. And those billable patients, we will charge you for 
per patient per month in a way where you're paying about half of what you're recouping from insurance. So let's say you bill $220 and our average cost was 75, you know, you're netting $145 per patient per month. In the case though, that we have been working and we've seen a lot of success this way is actually doing it in tiers. So that 80 patients, you know, might be in that tier of 50 to 100 patients. And so because the the higher amount of patients that you have in that tier, the lower your per patient per month. So we both win. Because for you, once you start launching a program, you don't want to half as, or you've already invested time and resources, but it's up to us to convert as many of those patients as possible, because if not, they're not going to be in our billable patient tier. So if you refer all those 80 patients, but at the end of the month, only five of them are billable, you're not paying for 80 patients. So it really puts the onus on, it's a shared onus, meaning you have to make the, you have to take the time and the diligence to enroll the patients. But if we don't convert them, then that's, that falls on us. Do you have a couple examples? Did that model make sense? I think so. Yeah. So basically patients. It's one of those things that is definitely much more visual. So I can, we can also put together something maybe that you can share that maybe shows that story a little bit better. Yeah. We can maybe take a couple slides and we'll post those in the show notes as well. APM success slash two zero one. Do you have a, maybe a case study for a practice that implementation went awesome and is like your poster child and one where like it wasn't a good fit and you didn't realize it until you got in, if that has happened and what characterizes those? Yeah. I mean, we've had a practice in, in Portland, Oregon. And we also have a practice in West Virginia, um, two different EMRs. So one is, you know, a non-cloud-based kind of older EMR practice with one MD, two NPs, and no, two PAs, and didn't really, wasn't really aware of their practice, their true practice volume. And in the course of a month, maybe they had brought on more than 200 patients and, you know, 40% of their practice, like on the, on the path to get 40% of their practice enrolled and obviously driving revenue across the board, but also giving us the opportunity to optimize that. So, you know, if we got a few denials from a major payer, we were able to adjust and resubmit and, you know, move forward with that from a growth perspective and on path to double their patient volume. So, and that was just within, I think we launched in February. So really seeing incredible growth and incredible partnership with that practice and a willingness and an interest in optimizing together. Right. So what is the list of the patients that are not enrolling? And this is the same practice, same kind of thing with the practice in West Virginia. What is what is happening with the patients who are not enrolling? What are they saying? How can we reach out to them together independently? What kind of messaging can we put together to help 
convey to the patients the success story so that they keep on using it. The practice in West Virginia is actually um, interesting because West Virginia, you know, there's remote patients. Many of like, there was concern about how many of them were going to be tech savvy, how many of them were going to be open to utilize digital tools. And the buy-in there and the relationship has just been, you know, really wonderful for the same kind of reason. You know, it's like, give us a list of all the patients who are not enrolling. Let's make a note of it. Okay. We put the notes directly in the charts. So that way, the next time they saw the patient, they would be able to have the story of what happened in that encounter and they could address it. They also started having positive success stories of patients through the platform and could use those anecdotes to help further perpetuate. And again, seeing, you know, month over month revenue growth in a way that validated, you know, this is, this is real. Mm -hmm. Can you speak briefly and quick disclaimer about Stark and Anti-Kickback? I'm not a lawyer and neither is Rachel. So please consult your unqualified healthcare counsel. But I understand that you've looked at this in terms of Stark and Anti-Kickback and the the way that, Mm -hmm. you know, either co-investment in the company or utilization of the company and opening up, opening up ancillary revenue streams creates uh, questions around that. Can you talk about the ways in which you've looked at that and the some of the thoughts that you have around it? Yeah, so I think they're two different, you know, two very different things. So one is is utilizing remote care in the way that we modeled okay in the anti-kickback and stark arrangements. For our company, yes, because the way that we have specifically outlined in our contracts and services. Uh, And this is something that you should look at with any, you know, vendor that you work with for any type of remote solution. You know, how is um, the billing like stretched? Like you can't have anything that says like, we will not bill unless we're reimbursed. Like that's just not allowed. And so any client that sells you on that, don't do that. So there's certain structures that just be aware of and also, you know, very well connected with a bunch of really awesome law firms that specialize in this space. So happy to be a resource to direct you to actual experts, not just ones who pretend to be one. The other side though is how can you invest in can you invest in digital health or remote care? And can you so the answer to that is yes. Can you use the product of which you've invested in? And that's where it becomes very state by state. It also becomes what percentage of ownership you have in that business. So if you have like less than 40% ownership in that business and you're not on the board or have any decision-making ability, then in most parts, that's fine. Um, If it's a publicly held company, you're fine. If it's in the services world, for the most part, like RPM companies, digital health companies, you're okay. RTM is kind of a gray area sometimes because of its <laughs> the way that it's coded as a service is kind of the same way that PT sometimes is coded as a service. And as pain doctors know, you know, there's a lot of stark laws around referring to PTs. All that being said, it's very specific based off of the state that you're in, the state of the company, your investment opportunity. All of that being said, though, that doesn't mean that there's not an opportunity there. And so I wouldn't just outright avoid those kinds of opportunities because there's a lot there. 
I would just be smart about it and maybe, you know, bring in a partner on a law firm or, you know, speak to Justin for doing so. If listeners are interested, want to reach out to you, want to understand if this could be a fit for the practice, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah. So I mean, just shoot me an email is like one of the easiest ways, rachel at upside.health. I think it'll also be in your show notes. My, my Calendly will probably also be there. So you can just grab a time for us, us to chat or always connect with me on LinkedIn. But I, I like to say this like every time I, I speak about this and I'd love to tell you about our services and offerings, sure. But I also, it's just as important for me that we make sure that we're really providing value to our clients. So even if you want to take 10 minutes and say like, how does this work in my practice? Could this work in my practice? Please reach out to me and I'm happy to, you know, outline your based off of your practice makeup, whether our tool or somebody else's tool might be a better fit to serve your needs. Awesome. Rachel Trobman, thank you very much for joining us today on APM Success. Thanks, Justin. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.